Welcome to another edition of the Del Niente Fellow Travelers podcast. I'm here with composer, scholar, computer musician, improviser, um, recovering trombone player, George <laughs> Lewis, um, who is the uh, Edwin H. Case Professor of American Music at Columbia University. Um, he's also, there's a long laundry list of other things that he is. He's a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Science, a corresponding fellow of the British Academy. Um, he was a MacArthur Fellow uh, in 2002. Um, the so-called Genius Grant, uh, a Guggenheim Fellow in 2015, United States Ar Artist Walker Fellowship in 2011, and an Alpert Awards in the Arts winner in 1999. His work has been performed by a long laundry list of ensembles uh, and orchestras, including the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra, the London Phil Philharmonia, the Radio Symphony Orchestra Stuttgart, the Mivas Quartet, Modern Boston Modern Orchestra Project, London Sinfonietta, Spectral Quartet, Talia Ensemble, Ensemble Del Niente, and I'll stop there. Long list of um, uh, ensembles with which he's worked. He's the author of A Power Stronger Than Itself, the AAC AACM and American Experimental Music, this book here. Um, we actually have two copies in our household. We have one paperback wow. and one hard hardback. So we're, um, we're, the, we're, we're the real thing over here. And uh, um, having, he, he was a, he's a, been a member of that organization since 1971 um, and studied composition with its founder, Muhal Richard Abrams, and trombone with Dean Hay. So, George, welcome to the podcast. It's just always a pleasure to, to be with you. Um, thanks for great. being here. Thanks, Michael. It's great to be here. It's great mm -hmm. to be with you and to see you over this long-distance phone line or Zoom or whatever it is. It's great. Yeah, I'm glad we could um, get you a good connection from outer space there. <laughs> He's talking about my virtual background. I, I realize that I'm now too old to go into outer space, so at least with the Zoom background, I can put myself in front of the space shuttle or the ship from Interstellar or something like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Had, had that always been a, a dream of yours to go to outer space? Oh yeah, family. We're all we're all Trekkies. My dad, my sister, we were all into that. You know, my dad was a, you know. Um, he was he he was an electronics person. So, oh, okay. So that was an interest an early interest of all of ours, and uh, we still watch technological stuff, shows about robots and all that. It's it's a, it's a, it's a it's a it's a theme in the family. Mm, okay. Uh, was your dad interested in building spaceships, or was in, interested in anything like that? No, but he did fix TVs. He fixed everybody's televisions. And uh, he had various sort of, back then the televisions were all tubes, so they were kind of easy to fix, you know. Mm. In fact, he made me feel that I could probably do it because he, he had these tube checkers. He said, well, take this tube out and put it into the checker and then check the manual to see which kind of tube it is and which socket to put it in. And now just see if it works. So he said, I'd say, well, this tube looks good. He said, okay, do the next one. We go like that. Or then you just had to, you couldn't, you just had to remember not to touch the cathode ray tube because that had 27,000 volts and you get a bad shock. So uh, that's probably stuff it. like that. So you learn to respect early on. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. Didn't expect us to start out with, with television repair, but, um, <laughs> but as, as good a place as any to start, um, let's, can we pivot hardcore to music for a second? Well, sure. Um, but we'll go back to this eventually because this whole thing relates to electronic music. So we could, we can actually go straight from that to, um, electronics I yeah mean, please because i guess that's one of the things i've been doing for a long time uh, you know the computer music and the electronic music and stuff and i sort of began uh, well you know at first when the 
when I became a part of the ACM in, in 71, you know, I continued to have this sort of tech orientation. So I was still more or less in college. So, um, so I bought a stereo cassette machine, one of the early ones around 71. And, mm -hmm. and I didn't have much money. So I found a schematic in a magazine to create like a homemade mixer that I could take along with me. Just a simple kind of resistance mixer. And I recorded tons of concerts with that, like multi-microphone concerts, which I still have a lot of these recordings of a lot of the AACM concerts I participated in. If you wow. want to, I can play you one of them. Oh, wow, please. A pretty cool one If later if you want. Cause that, yeah, sure. I, took the, I did this for years, I, you know, a lot of early concerts. Um, and then later when uh, I met people like, through Anthony Braxton, people like Richard Teitelbaum, and uh, David Berman, you know, the late Richard Teitelbaum. It's so, we're so, God, it's such a, I can't believe he's gone. I just can't, you know, you think everybody's going to be around forever, you know? Yeah. We've all left us. Uh, Richard, I mean, he's a major mentor of mine. And David Berman is still around. And so, uh, you know, um, so when I started doing computer music, it was sort of under his guidance, you know, not formally. It was all, there was just a group, there were just, it was just a group of artists, you know, who were working with these single board uh, microcomputers to try to create music. And so in order to, um, in order to, we all got these things called Kim Ones. This is all stuff that a lot of people know about. Even I wrote about it in an article about Rich Gold, who was one of the early uh, people in the League of Automatic Music Composers, which was a Bay Area group mm -hmm. that was doing like early network uh computing uh, where the computers would actually create the music by themselves without human intervention. Okay, without human intervention. Which is kind of what I do, but that's where it came from. But in any event, they were all builders. And if, you know, David was building his own circuits. It's coming out of that scene with Gordon Muma, David Berriman, David Tudor, the people that built their own circuits and used them with, you know, Merce, Cunningham, and all and in their own projects. So, um, and a lot of times the, the circuit diagram was the real score, you know. Um, so when I started doing it, they said, well, you should get one of these Kim one computers. So you had to order it, you ordered it on, you ordered it, uh, mail order. Uh, it was 250 bucks. It came in mm -hmm. a single board and three huge manuals, which are written for engineers. You know, the word, wow. the word bite was not in the dictionary. So you had to, <laughs> so you had to like, you know, what is, what are they talking about? <laughs> This byte is eight bits. What the hell does that mean? <laughs> so, <laughs> so at a certain, but then the first, it starts right away when mm -hmm. you sort of like this, there was a programming, a programming manual where they told you about, you had to program in machine code, you know, assembly language, you know, like bits and bytes and stuff, mm -hmm. and, you know, load A with the accumulator, all this kind of stuff. And then you had to, um, then you had to build the, power supply. It didn't come with the power supply. You had to build that. So, and they had a suggested schematic. So I looked at the schematic and said, how am I going to build a power supply? I've never done this. So I looked at this schematic and suddenly I realized I know what this says. Because like going back to my dad telling me about, you know, these lectures, I'm five years old. He's saying, well, he didn't have anybody to talk to about this stuff, you know? Uh -huh. So he would just start talking about Ohm's law for no particular reason. <laughs> e equals IR. <laughs> you know, why do I know this? 
I realized this was it. So I could read the, I knew what a capacitor was. I knew what a resistor was. I knew what a diode was just from talking to him. So, and then, you know, you get a couple of books, like they had these Radio Shack books back then. And before I knew it, I had to, I had the thing built and I hooked it up. And every minute I would call David and say, is he okay? I think it's working. I have my voltmeter says it's five volts steady. You think it's going to go? He said, well, yeah. So just make sure you plug it into the right area. So I got it to working. The thing turned on. And then I ran the sample program, which was like, you know, not hello world. It wasn't quite that sophisticated. And then at that point, I called him up again in five minutes. I said, well, David, okay, I got it working. Now, how do you make music with it? I think, he, I think his response was something like, well, that's your problem. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he would say it much less, he would say it much more elegantly than that. But that was the essential thing. And so you just had to figure out how to make the thing do music. And from that point, uh, that was where I started really with that. And what, what year was that? Is that early 70s? This would have been 78. Okay. After the thing was, after visiting the Bay Area, Jacques Bécart, who is something something we all know, the Belgian composer and journalist who studied with Henri Pousseur, and he made all these pieces, and he was he was a journalist in Cambodia and Malta and all these places. He just published a memoir of his life, mm-hmm. and so I went to the Bay Area with him and stayed at David's house, and and uh, Frederick Chesky was around and. You know, Blue Jean Tyranny and, uh, and uh, you know, members of the league like uh, uh, Rich Gold, John Bischoff. Um, and so I went to some rehearsals with them and I went to a rehearsal and they were just sitting there and the computers were playing all the music. Hmm. I said, wow, this is amazing. This sounds like, this sounds like people improvising. Because we had just had this quartet with Douglas Ewart, uh, Wata Bowden, and James Johnson. It was called Quadrasect. It was a mm. quartet, like a wind quartet. Mm. And it sounded like what we were doing. Wow. So I said, well, I got to get one of these. This is yeah. If you can do this, really? And I never thought, well, wow, I couldn't do this, or this is going to be difficult, or, or how, would you, how do you do this? It looks daunting, the kind of stuff, you know. But I never, never imagined that it would be, I mean, it was hard. Yeah. But I never imagined it would be something I wouldn't be able to do. That um, I mean, I think that's pretty characteristic of your your approach to things. I think. Um, what what? So let me ask. I, I don't think I know. What's your like? What is your earliest uh, electro um, electronic composition, or what's your earliest program? Your earliest improvising program? Uh, wow, that. You know, I was trying to do musical electronics before that. Like, if you, the old record from nineteen seventy eight called the Imaginary Suite. Mm. Or a record like, um, these are records because they're really literally vinyl records, mm-hmm. uh, Chicago Slow Dance. They were live performances and, and we, I was using my same homemade resistance mixer and it was hooked up to, um, uh, it was hooked up to cassette machines. In New York City, you could go to Canal Street at the time, downtown, you could get like, there were electronics shops. So you could mm. buy resistors, capacitors, circuit boards, solder, all that. But you could also buy these little cheap uh, cassette machines, which were useful one, because that was how you saved data for the Kim One computers. You saved mm. data onto cassettes. And then the other one, they were useful to, because you could buy endless loop cassettes and you'd record on those, you know, field recordings, concrete sounds, whatever you wanted. Uh, I had a Moog synthesizer, a very cheap one, and um, and I would make endless loop cassettes. And then the 
when you listen to Chicago Slow Dance, what you're hearing is like four or five endless loop cassettes mixed together to create these loops. And that's the kind of thing I was doing be before this, before starting to work with computer programs in the, around 79 was one of the first one was uh, the Kim and I, that's a recording for the kitchen. Uh, the kitchen recorded that. So that's on some CD now mm. from 1979. It was done in New Music, New York, uh, mm. that sort of famous festival. Anyway, so yeah, that's when I started with that. Yeah, and I mean, I um. And I mean, your work with electronics has like developed in incredible and, you know, un unpredictable ways. Um, I think, I mean, one of my favorite pieces of yours is the, um, the work that you, uh, that you wrote for, um, Seth Parker Woods, the cellist. Oh, thank you. Yeah. That not alone for not that alone. series, that series of pieces for spatialized multi-channel electronics. And, mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, there's a series of them, uh, you know, by that time, uh, I've almost stopped programming because uh, 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 Damon Holsborn, who was my former undergraduate and graduate student and now kind of an associate collaborator, I mean, he he built all that stuff, you know. And so he built the, the software for those pieces and I wrote the music and then I can program the software to basically write music on the patch. Mm -hmm. so, but I was going to say that takes, I mean, that jumps ahead to 20, that, might be, yeah. that jumps ahead to 2014. Mm -hmm. So if we jump back suddenly to 1978 or 1980, uh, doing like drone music and minimalist music, uh, using, working with Richard Teitelbaum, the uh, one record that a lot of people liked apparently was homage to Charles Parker. And that was a sort of a minimalist piece. And a lot of it was kind of working out influences, you know, like I was, you know, I've been going to Lamont Young concerts mm -hmm. and listening to well-tuned piano or, or doing threshold music with Richard Teitelbaum in these, in these lofts or listening to David Behrman on the other ocean, which is, uh, which is such a great piece. In fact, I got, that was our wedding march, me and Mia Masoka, <laughs> David Behrman's On the Other Ocean. I mean, it's, it's, it's like minimalism with computers. And it was a very simple thing where there were these six pitches. He had these tune filters, like a pitch follower. And then the two musicians, Arthur Stidfull and Maggie Payne, Arthur Stidfull played bassoon and Maggie Payne playing flute, were just improvising slowly along with the electronics and it was like, it was amazing, elegiac, these improv, these sort of amazing sound. And so I was kind of used to all that. And so, mm. and then the other thing was like, microphony eins und zwei. Mm. Mm. So when you listen to homage, if you listen to homage to Charles Parker, the first part where we took these symbols and we mic'd them up with contact mics and Douglas and I, uh, Douglas Ewart was playing mm -hmm. the symbols and I had like these electro harmonics flangers. 
<laughs> analog, analog, uh, you know, electronics and digital analog delays and all that real cheap, cheap stuff. You know, if you knew this stuff, the small stone or the big muff or these kinds of things, you know, electroharmonic stuff. And so we were using that and with the mixers to create the sounds. And then the last part was Richard on the polymode and, um, and, and, uh, Douglas playing the sort of playing the part of Charlie Parker and, uh, Anthony Davis. So, so yeah, that was what I, that was before, like before I started doing computers or around the same time, I guess, I guess 1980, it's all kind of around the same time, I guess. But that was, I mean, now 2014, that's quite a long time later. Sure, yeah. Well, I mean, you said it was like that that was somehow a process of like working out influences. Uh, can can you say what the result of that was? I mean, how did that? Well, I um, guess you'd have to hear it. I mean, yeah. it's something we could play a bit of, uh, maybe either, you know, we could play a bit of at some point. Sure. Um, but I would say that I tend to think about influences all the time. In other words, there's always some inspiration behind the pieces I write. You know, there are multiple, it's sort of almost almost like sampling. Like we'll take, I'll take something and something I heard and sort of transmogrify it <laughs> to something else. <laughs> and then, you know, I think I heard someone say, maybe it was Henry Threadgill say, you don't want to hear the sources. You know, you want to okay. just have it so that we don't really know what the sources are. Um, and so we, so I'd have to tell you what they were. It wow. wouldn't be something, hopefully it wouldn't be something where you'd say, oh, that sounds like so-and-so. But if you point out any part in any piece of mine, I can say, well, this reminds me of this thing I was, this person I was thinking about or this music I was thinking about, you know. Well, that's, I mean, that, that's, that is very interesting. I mean, I, I don't think I've ever, obviously I've heard you talk a lot about, I mean, all the stuff you've read, all the music you know. Um, so, you know, obviously you have influences and you have quite a lot of them because you, you know so much stuff. But I don't think I've, I've ever heard you talk about the process of being influenced. And, and I certainly, when I listen to, I can't think of any piece of yours where when I listen to it, I'm like, oh, George is just doing the thing that, you know, Stockhausen did, you know. Um, that's obviously not how your music your music comes across as extremely uh, you know unique and individual in its voice. I mean, you know, the only con the only thing that I really know is there's the Roscoe Mitchell lick in Assemblage that we play, but I only know that because a deliberate homage, right? Exactly, <laughs> exactly a deliberate homage. So that's not a that's not a, a sort of concealed reference or anything like that. So I mean, can you? Um, I mean, are, are there particular examples you can point to or want to talk about, or are they too pervasive to even well, get, you, get into? Or, or you could you could ask me. You could say, "Well, where does this part come from?" I might be able to tell you. <laughs> oh, okay. Let's like how. Okay, let's let's do that. Let's I, let's play that game for a second. So the um the flexitone lick that happens in like assemblage and it happens in hexus and mimosas. Oh yeah, I think, a lot of different places. In, in a lot of different places, it's just like and and I mean, maybe it's, it's a theraben. Okay. Okay, there you go. 
And so the thing was, you know, you could see this, you've probably seen this video by now. We all went out to Theremin's house in 1991. It's on YouTube. In Moscow, yeah. Yeah, we went there because uh, we were there, uh, me, Paul Lansky, and John Chowning, somehow at the somehow under the influence of um of todd macover who convinced sarah caldwell of all people to send us to the soviet union for two weeks i was gonna say how did you end up in the soviet union well that was how it happened late that's, 70s. that's one thing and we, yeah. you know you know about this because it turned yeah. out that you well we'll get to that point we'll get to that yeah and um so we were there we were there in saratov for a week and a half and, and then a few days in moscow we did concerts of computer music, including versions of Voyager, uh, performed on the Atari uh, ST series of computers, and uh, walked around and understood things. And then we got to Moscow. Uh, the composer Vladimir Komarov got in touch and said, "Well, why don't we all go out to uh, Professor Theremin's house?" And I think John said, "Is he still alive?" You know. <laughs> <laughs> Turned out, yes, he was, and we all went out to his house. And so we got to see him and meet him and talk to him. And it's all on YouTube. You can find it mm -hmm. it's called Leon Theremin Moscow 1991 for those who want to search for that. We talked about different things. We found out that he, had, we didn't know anything about Theremin, nothing. We didn't know that he had been, well, maybe John or Paul knew, but I didn't know that he'd been the toast of New York in the 20s mm. and that he had married an African-American choreographer, Lavinia Williams. Mm. We didn't know about that until he asked, he asked us about her in the interview. And it was, I'm glad I didn't know that she had passed away in, in 75. So mm. this was 91 because it would have been terrible. Oh, she past you know <sighs> you know because she never remarried as it turned out mm. and and it also turned out that the probable way which they got they met was one probable method was i was in jazz archives at rutgers they had the james p johnson archives so i looked in the james p johnson archives i saw these there were these heartbreaking letters he was writing all these letters because he started writing like classical music like orchestral pieces and chamber music no one wanted to play that Mm -hmm. But they sounded great, and now there's a recording of it called Victory Stride. But back then, no, he was just you know trying to write all these famous people, trying to get Guggenheims. Nobody was interested, so he couldn't break in because he was too tainted by being the Stride piano guy and the and the inventor of the Charleston. So the Charleston, he I probably what he did was he used a lot of his Charleston money mm. to, to uh, bankroll his own concerts. So in one of the programs for the concert, it said, Lavinia Williams dance, Leon Theremin sound. I'm trying to think, James P. Johnson, Leon Theremin, Lavinia Williams. That would have been a great thing to see. I mean, it wasn't in, it wasn't in the movie they made, none of that, you know. Mm. That, was, that was the thing. And 
the movie what they made, Theremin Electronic Odyssey, that was made uh, when John Chowning, who was working, who was at Stanford, uh, got some funds to bring Theremin to the U.S. And so he met the filmmakers, and that's how they made the film. And uh, so that was much, much later. Well, you should write. You should write a piece that's a reimagining of that of that uh, that performance. I mean, like with Merson Baby or something like that. Well, Merson Baby, that's another one. See, that's yeah. a perfect example. You just played that. I've been doing in in like 2007, 2008. Uh, John King uh, uh, organized it so that I could become part of playing the Merce Cunningham events, which was wonderful because you know a lot of what I do is based on having known the people in some way personally, not mm. not having read about it in a book or or anything like that, and that I've read the books later. But mm. which, <clears throat> which is nice because then you, it provides a check on. That's how I know that there's a public and a private transcript about everything. Mm. And most of the writing presents the public transcript and never presents anything else. Like they, mm. they say, well, John Cage wasn't interested in improvisation. That's the public transcript. The private transcript is very different. Mm. So, um, so, you, so at a certain point, you don't get caught up in these, uh, these binaries of oppositions about who's doing what and being opposed to this and being opposed to that. You just kind of accept and absorb and and learn and transform. So there I was playing the events at um, Dia Beacon. Uh, that was where the incredible performance, uh, and I did some others, the Joyce uh, play, you know, Takisa Kosugi, uh, Marina Rosenfeld, David, mm. David Berman, uh, John King, uh, and so on. Sometimes we did them with fast forward, all kinds of people. But anyway, um, for Merce, I think it was his birthday or something, and, it's, mm. and people were celebrating, but at a certain point he was all by himself, and I'd done several of these things. I'd never gotten the chance to talk to him, really, so I just went up and talked to him. Mm -hmm. I said, so, happy birthday, and how's it going? He said, instead of going with that, he said, well, George, you know, you know, I didn't feel the same way about improvisation as John. <laughs> he just cut straight to the, he knew the questions you had. Yeah, I mean, he, like you know, he read, I, he read the '95 article and he said, you know, okay, I got some stuff to talk to this guy about. Well, that's what frightened me that he. Oh, okay. A lot of people thought the 90, 90 the ninety, it was ninety six. Ninety six, okay. The astrological, yeah. urological article, you know, was an attack on Cage, which it really wasn't. It was an attack on the people who used Cage to bash, uh, sure, Afro Afro American, you know, improvising music. So it was sort of a, a way of recontextualizing that, I, I mean, to show that and to sort of free those people from that sort of baleful binary of like right. the Afro Euro getting caught in all that, you know, and somehow because they, you know, they were doing it on their side, they couldn't acknowledge the other people. So it was, it was, it was trying to free everybody up to be who they I like were. The, I like the way you put that. That's an it's a way of, free of freeing people from a baleful binary. That's, that's great. Yeah. So... Anyway, so I said, well, what do you mean, Merce? He said, well, you know, you, maybe you know about the concert I did with Baby Dodds, you know, being the canonical uh, 
you know, the player who, you know, one of the great trap drummers, the early trap drummers, he did all the, he was innovator on the instrument, he did all this work with Louis Armstrong and everybody, you know. And so I'm wondering, wow, what, what, that's the, what, what must that have been like? And the other thing I started to wonder then, which was how come I'd never read about this in any of the books on experimental music, which by that time I was, you know, 2008, I'd been writing scholarly articles on this, but I'd never read about this particular collaboration. And it turned out it was in just two places. David Vaughn, who was Mercer's biographer, wrote about it. Mm. And um, Baby Dodds wrote about it in his memoirs talked about this guy, Merce Cunningham, and he came to see me. He said, I want to play with you. I said, well, I don't know what you want to do. And he's, I, I, he, said, he said, play something. So I played something. I said, that's what I want. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm back with Merce, and I'm saying, well, wow, what happened there, you know? And he said, well, we couldn't get Baby to stop accompanying us. Okay, yeah. So, and then I found out later that this concert took place in 1946. Hmm. And there, and at that time, I guess they were already into this idea that they wanted to have the music and the dance be separate. Be separate, yeah. And it, and it wasn't, and it was all kinds of things connected with that. When I started to look into the concert, the piece was called Fast Blues. Uh, I think it was Cage and maybe Maro or Jamian, maybe. They might have played a two-piano transcription of, of Sati Socrat. And so in Socrat, that piece becomes later the basis for the cheap imitation because cheap they imitation, weren't allowed sure. to use that. The Sati estate wouldn't allow them to use that. So Merce and Baby, to get finally back around to that, is a depiction of all these elements. You know, there are three dancers plus the trap drummer, <laughs> <laughs> which Kyle did a fantastic job on. Right. Don Leonte is really amazing. And... Um, and uh, so, and then there's the, um, and then there's a part of it which is sort of a cheap imitation of Cage's cheap imitation. <laughs> <laughs> a, a, a doubly cheap imitation. Right. Does that make it expensive somehow? Um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe, <laughs> who knows? I, I hope I don't get sued. <laughs> <laughs> but see, that's a great example of what you try to build into the piece. There are no direct sources of depiction and nobody would pick that out. But if you read right. the program notes and there are these sources and you're, once it becomes clear, but that provides the the means for me to create the music. And I was talking to someone just the other day who was saying, I really need a source of inspiration in order to write something. That might have been Courtney Bryan or was it mm. her? Somebody who said they really needed a source of inspiration in order to write. I mean, she doesn't seem to be lacking sources of inspiration. No, um, because she's voracious. Uh, you know, yeah. she she looks everywhere, so... I mean, yeah, like just the, the, the orchestra piece of hers that I've conducted in Sanctum, you know, that piece is just like, I mean, it's, you know, it, it comes across, I mean, like, I, I actually tried my best to like chase down all the references and all the like, she quotes this sermon here and she quotes, you know, or, or, you know, she quotes this, this bit of this recording here and like, this is this part from this, um, uh, like, this is this part from this video clip and it's so... It, it does. It has actually maybe. I mean, because I know she worked with you. I mean, so you, um, there's obviously some affinity there. But it does feel like encyclopedic, and yeah, not. There's no, you know, fat there. There's no sort of excess. It feels like uh, sh she's processed a bunch of of information and sort of made it into a sort of quasi tone poem. Um, is the thing that occurred to me. Um, 
Yeah. But yeah, she doesn't seem to be lacking in inspiration. No, and, and you know, and she's a person who is uh, has been able to connect sacred music with the secular in some mm. very interesting ways that are sort of innovative ways, including the use of electronics. She took my interactive electronics class. So, and she built sort of some sort of interesting video electronics interactive, uh, you know, interface. So, and using Max MSP. So, mm. I, I mean, these, you know, I've had a lot of fantastic students, you know, I hate to single people out, but I had a lot of fantastic students, both the composers and the, and the, the theorists, you know, that I work with at UCSD and then at Columbia. So, you know, that's amazing. I don't know. I'm amazed at what, what they've turned out and how they've done things. You know? Yeah, no, I mean, that's, a, I, I, I can, <clears throat> I can attest to that being a factual statement. That's not just, you know, Proud teacher moment. That's like you have had some truly fantastic students. Well, like you were, th you've been playing Andile Kumalo's work a lot, for example. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Andile Kumalo, Kumalo is an amazing, amazing composer. We're, we're both fans of. Um, he worked with you in early two thousands or. Uh, you know, he got his degree in twenty thirteen. Mm -hmm. Okay. And he also studied with Tristan Mirai, and before mm -hmm. that, he studied in Germany. He's a very well trained composer. He's a Zulu origin from uh, Johannesburg. And now he's there. He has a job as the co-deputy head of school at Wits University. Mm. And I'm hoping to visit him there at some point. And I'm also hoping, we're also hoping to bring him to the U.S. next year. And, and also to, to Germany, where we have this very interesting project around Afro-diasporic uh, composition, mm. uh, which we're trying to do. But someone like that is a, is a perfect example of someone who's synthesized a lot of influences, who's very voraciously multicultural, diverse, and uh, he actually had a piece performed at Darmstadt in 2008, one of two Afro-Diaspora composers, or three if you count Kevin Volans, um, mm -hmm. but Whoa, two of wow. the Black ones. Yeah, of right. the Black ones, there's only him and Alvin Singleton. Singleton in 73 and Andile in 20, 2008, I think it was. So I'd just be curious. I mean, and then me in 2018. <laughs> then you you finally. I mean, I'd be curious to know. I mean, Singleton strikes me as like an unobvious choice. I mean, and and just I'd love to hear any thoughts you have on this. I mean, like it, it seems to me that like, you know, okay, a, a composer like Anthony Braxton, mm -hmm. um, a composer like Roscoe Mitchell, um, you know, ha have been have been working, have been composing for a very long time. Obviously, Braxton has compositions that number in the hundreds, like literally number in the hundreds. It yeah. seems to me that some of a lot of what he does is uh, consonant with and sort of like sort of the, the Euro class, so-called Euro new music, neue Musik. Um, it's surprising to me that someone like Braxton was never played at Darmstadt, has not been played at Darmstadt as far as I know. Well, it's very complicated, but if you if you go in that direction, it, the list is very long. You know, Indeed. Tanya Leon or Braxton or... Oh, you know, Ollie Wilson, you know, all kinds of people. Um, but Alvin, and it's particularly odd with Alvin because Alvin, you know, he won the Chronic Steiner Prize. Right, right. That's mm -hmm. the major award at Darmstadt yeah. for his piece. Was, I think it was a trio piece. And he studied, he studied at Goffredo Petrassi, you know, he was at Yale. I met him at Yale. I was an undergraduate. And and I was um, I was a roommate with Miles Hoffman, the violinist and violist, and uh, he was roommates with him. Wait, the guy who's like he's the, he's the host of Performance Today on NPR. 
I, I guess so. Is that guy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. He's a great guy. Am I think I'm the right guy. Yeah. 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 Sounds yeah. like a great guy on the radio. Yeah, Mike. You know, Mike Miles Hoffman. He was, he was wonderful. He's a great player, and um, you know, yeah. So anyway, he was um, and a very affable host later, and uh, very knowledgeable. And uh, we were roommates in freshman year, and so he was playing with the Yale Symphony. And uh, one day he said, well, this is a very unusual piece that you should come in here. <laughs> I said, okay, wow, because I hadn't been, so I, I went there. And, uh, and then it was a very unusual piece. It was called Mestizo II. been around 71 or 70 or something like that mm -hmm. and um, then the composer comes out and it's a black guy and I said wow <laughs> so I said I decided I had to meet this guy and that's how I met Alvin Sainton he was a graduate student he was getting his DMA which he ended up not really getting you know because they have some weird thing about Yale about distinguishing yourself I mean nobody's more distinguished than Alvin it's ridiculous <laughs> so you know in any event um, yeah. But, and then I visited him in Graz. He was living there and uh, later in the 70s. And we've mm -hmm. kept up ever since, you know. Uh, you know uh, so, but he's like a major figure. And um, they, we just got his papers to come to Columbia now. So, I mean, he's one of the major African-American composers of the century. So, yeah. If, yeah or I mean, one of the major composers, really. Yeah, I just want to that. For me, period, of the century. <laughs> I mean, I think we just, yeah, we can just, we cannot qualify it and just say one of the one of the major composers. Well, it's important um, to say that they're African American because if you look at a guy like George Walker, who was the first uh, African American to get the Pulitzer, he said it didn't make any real difference in his his commissions or performances. You know, even that kind of a major thing. You know, I mean, yeah. no one seemed to see that see that as making any difference. So there was a kind of investment in, in, in sort of precarity and invisibility there, which uh, I'm sure everyone experienced, all the black composers experienced. An investment in precarity. And, and, and a disinvestment and, and invisibility, invis yeah. investment in visibility. So you see what's happened with Julius Eastman, sure. for example. I mean, he went through that as well. And now, now that he's passed away and now, you know, was it 20 years later or whatever? People are saying, wow, Julius Eastman. So we, we like for these people to become known while they're around. And so, and it's also that you see this kind of thing as being a, a worldwide commitment to 
the posse are changing classical music and what's and who are, who's considered a subject in the discourse right to not have the to not have the repetition of the same people as being the privileged ones and to see that if we're missing the Afro-Diasporic part of the music, we're missing something that for musical reasons, it impoverishes the, the understanding of the music if you don't have those people, if you don't know their work or if you're not being performed or whatever. You know, it's not a Coles to Newcastle kind of thing. It really is, a, it really is something where you, we're missing a lot if we don't hear from Andile or Alvin or Tanya or, or Hale Smith or... And especially after 1960, where there's an incredible explosion of creativity, Talib Rasul Hakim, who you've been thinking about as well, um, or uh, let's see, there's a, I mean, there are people now, it's incredible, Trevor Weston, uh, Jesse Montgomery, um, you know, I mean, there's a ton of people. So it's time to get those people out there, you know, yeah. and to look at look at this as being part of what happens when you start to think about it. it's beyond diversity it's into just bringing everyone together so we can see the contribution that everyone has made and so we can have the cross fertilization where everyone learns from being around a vastly enriched creative and cultural environment right you do i mean occasionally i do hear you make like a word you'll use occasionally is intersectionality yeah, um, I assume you mean then the kind of like Kimberly Crenshaw kind of just the basic bell hooks kind of way, um, and and uh, you know I think um, I don't know just in, in my limited experience I think this is an underutilized concept in music specifically. It seems to me um, it seems like it seems like maybe like literature, um, popular uh, you know criticism of pop culture, um, you know uses the concept of intersectionality like a little more than we do in music, but maybe I'm just reading the wrong people. Well, you know, it, it comes from the critical legal fraternity or community, not fraternity, it comes from the critical legal community. And um, Kimberly Crenshaw, that is her background. And there's always been a strong interest in music there. So in a way, it, it, it filters into music from the legal community that was right. very interested in, especially black music and improvised music. Uh, you know, Cheryl I. Harris, one of the major legal theorists who's at... Uh, UCLA. I mean, she was a she is a board member of the AACM. She went to all the concerts, and and uh, she married the uh, South African poet uh, uh, Willie Karapetse uh, Kotsisile, and their son is uh, Earl Sweatshirt. So there's all kinds of connections with music there, mm -hmm. and so in an intersectional way. Um, but certainly, in terms of the discourses surrounding the academic discourses surrounding music especially classical music, there's a lot of work to be done, uh, certainly around gender, uh, sexuality, but, but probably the, the, the more glaring issue is when they don't talk well about race, or race is more indigestible right now than the gender discourses. And so that's something that um, is, is getting done. It's coming to fruition, and there are generations, newer generations of scholars, mm -hmm. newer generations of institutional people, uh, curators, uh, uh, music directors, uh, composers, orchestras, uh, ensembles that are thinking in these ways, like you mm -hmm. are ensemble Doliente or Ice or Italia or some some of the others as well. Uh, you know, London Sinfonietta, South Bank. They're all trying these kinds of new things. So, uh, the, it, I'm optimistic about it. Yeah. That's, I'm, I'm, glad to, I'm glad to hear that. I have to be optimistic because I saw where it was. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
It's like if you weren't if you weren't optimistic, then what what in the world could one be? Well, um, you know, I come from the Muhammad Abrams school of optimism. In fact, he he wrote a piece we played called Optimism. Hmm. I don't remember how it went, but it was, you know, you have to be optimistic because you see where you came from. You know, it's one of those. I don't know where we're going, but it's showing where we've been, that kind of thing. Sure, know? sure. Yeah, I think. I mean, I mean, I guess you know that there's um. There's this article recently in this in this book, um, "Seeing Race Again," right? Is the, and um, is that and Tina the, Camp? The, it's a. Uh, it, it, it's with Kimberly Crenshaw. And, oh, uh, I see. No. And uh, she, I mean, she's one of the editors. And but there's this there's a chapter in there called um, the, I'm, I'm trying to read it, the, the the possessive in, investment in classical music, confronting legacies of white supremacy in U.S. schools and departments of music. Oh, by, possessive. By, who wrote that? This is uh, Lauren Kajiwala. Kajikawa. Oh, Laura Kajikawa, yeah, yeah. Right. This is and this is not. Um, this is this is the first. Um, I'll, you know, uh, this I, I'm, this is the first piece like this that I've read in a kind of scholarly, um, you know, kind of context. But of course, I might just be looking in the wrong, wrong places. But I'm glad, I'm glad that article finally got written um, nope. in a scholarly. You know, Laura has done major, majorly important work. I don't know that particular piece, but the, of course, the title of it comes from George Lipsis's uh, the the uh, labor historian's work and popular music uh, theorist uh, and chronicler, George Lipsitz, who wrote a, mm -hmm. wrote a famous book called The Possessive Investment in Whiteness, mm -hmm. How White People Profit from Identity Politics. Sure. And I worked with George at UCSD, mm -hmm. he was a colleague there, and he wrote incredible books. He wrote, about, he, wrote, he wrote a book about Johnny Otis. He wrote another book called Dangerous Crossroads, in which uh, he was... He interviewed Fela Kuti or something like that, and it was incredible about L.A. And he just finished a new book. He edited. He did the foreword to a, with um, God, who's the other guy? I'm trying to think. Uh, it was about uh, Ruben. God, what's this guy? Ruben Funkawattle. <laughs> I, I, I'm trying to get this thing together. It's a it's an amazing book. Um, yeah, Ruben. The Confessions of a Radical Doo-Wop, Radical Chicano Doo-Wop Singer. <laughs> That's a great title. Yeah, I got, I'm, I'm going to find that. Yeah, Chicano Doo-Wop. And he really was a Doo-Wop singer. Mm. But he was also involved in the Japanese. Yeah, here it is. Ruben Funkawato Guevara. And he was, he was, he was the, uh, he started the actual, Frank, he was actually a Doo-Wop singer. And uh, and he was you know he he somehow he got to know Frank Zappa and Frank Zappa said well look um you could be Ruben of Ruben and the Jets so they started a band called Ruben and the Jets and they made all these records <laughs> <laughs> and then he got involved in things like the Japanese uh, movement you know the you know for reparations he got involved in that movement one of the Japanese movement activists so he got to know my brother-in-law Mark Masaoka in L.A. Who is um who was a part of that movement as well, and and his wife Kathy Mossop, and they're both involved in that. So he had a pretty long reach, and so that's where music can take you, and that's the kind of thing that George had been doing. So he, I guess, he inspired Lauren to create this article, which I really want to read. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a it's a it's. A, it also gives me hope. It, it gives me reason for optimism as well, since I think this is a thing that one confronts in institutional contexts. You know, really. Um, well, it's it's still around. Um, well, a lot of these very cool theorists like George are waiting for classical music to kind of grow up and and and, and break out of these these sort of self imposed isolation to start thinking about these things, because they already know the music. I mean, you know, but and some of them maybe aren't 
after a while, if you don't see real change, you stop following it. So every so often, sure, if I'm talking to them or someone else, as we say, you know, there's a lot of new movement out there. People are, I mean, you're doing incredible work. You know, you're sort of thinking about, uh, you know, ways of, of changing the field where you see new kinds of composers, new models of what a composer could be. Like I said, I mean, before I saw Alvin up there on the stage at the Yale Symphony and what was it, Stuckel Hall or whatever hall it was. Yeah, yeah. I said, well, wow, you know, um, I mean, we, we can be composers. And that was kind of weird because I was taking I was taking music theory with Laz Equeme, Lazarus Equeme. It was like, a, you know, at the time he came to be one of the major sort of musicologists, African music theorists. But I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he was just a real hard nosed guy who was just threatening to fail me all the time if I didn't do better. <laughs> but I guess that's the reason why he was being hard nosed. He said, "Well, yeah, finally have a black student in my class. I got to do something." shape up here <laughs> i mean anthony well, davis was there too oh really it was in school with you yeah oh wild yeah man i just don't you know like gosh just you know well, we, had, well, we had a pretty good crew robert, pretty good dick, crew. robert dick was in there anthony uh uh henry lewis gates uh let's see who else uh and it turns out ben carson was there too all i didn't know oh my him. gosh well yeah. i didn't know him and I don't remember him. And the New Yorker called me up and said, "You must, you must remember Ben Carson." I said, "I really don't." So I emailed Skip and I said, "Was Ben Carson really there?" He said, "You don't remember." <laughs> <laughs> and so it was plausible deniability. No, I didn't. Don't remember the guy. <laughs> must have blocked it out, you know. Which is um, possibly, you know. yeah. Cause there are a lot of cool people who went there. Yeah, I was going to say, don't don't waste your time with the not cool ones. I mean, Anthony's father was the was the master of Calhoun College. And oh, okay, of Calhoun College they, of all yeah, things. And that, yeah, right. That was the, yeah. which they changed the name now to after recently, the, right? Yeah. What they changed it to, I don't remember, but um, I don't know. Anyway, and post abolition kind of name. Hmm. Um, yeah. So I don't know. We're, we're going on and on here, Michael. What yeah. you, you want to talk to me about? Uh, oh, I, yeah. I mean, just I could go on forever with yeah, stories and all. Yeah, that. of course. Well, I mean, I think I, I don't want to lose the the Andile Kumalo thread just since we talked about him. Why don't we? Do, do you mind if we like listen to just a, a couple of minutes of his piece "Cry Out" because I just love the the ending yeah. of it. I just think it's a great piece. I'm going to share my screen. Here. All right. Um,
I mean, I just love that. I, I think that's just such a fabulous ending. Um, it's it's like a it, it's such a like kind of quirky musical imagination, you know. Like it's it's sort of going along mechanically, and you know everything's sort of fitting in, and then it like <clears throat> and you feel like you have a pretty good sense of just how it, how it's working and how that what the piece is and like what this is, and then it's just got then it stops and it's just like a viola note for you know. And you sort of send, or like you know, we could this this viola note feels like it go, could go on forever, and then like it returns, then it's you know the other texture returns, and then it's over. And I, I think like it's a really creative approach to like proportions, and it's like an, an unusual juxtaposition. So I think it's just it, you know, and I don't know where he got any of that. I mean, he obviously got some of it from from you, but I mean, what was he like to work with? I mean, and if you have anything to say about the what we just listened to, you know, please. You know, you know, I as I heard it it suddenly develops into this sort of mechanical a toy piano-like texture. Mm. It doesn't start out that way. It starts right. out kind of disconnected, kind of, and suddenly, all of a sudden, you notice it's locked in. Yeah, right. Was it always locked in? Mm. I should go back and check it out. You yeah. know, I'm always using, every time I have a, a cassette machine back in the day, the, the rewind button always wore out. So, mm. <laughs> so, what was that again? You know, and that's the thing about Andelia's music. Is like, what was that? Where yeah, that right, from? right. Where did that come from? Right. And, and how did he get there from here? And um, you know, he, you know, and he was a very careful. Look, he was a real stickler. I had him as my um, as my teaching assistant in undergraduate composition, and he he gave the he gave the undergraduates fits because he was a super editor, just like every little part. Yes, he was like, you didn't do this, you didn't dot that i. Where's that <laughs> accent? Where's this and so on? Incredible. And you know, and they weren't really expecting that from him. I don't know why. Because he's definitely very meticulous, mm. and uh, that was one of his actually. That was one of his dissertation pieces. Mm. See, the thing is that Michael. I mean, hearing you play it and hearing you talk about it has caused me to think about his music in a new way that I hadn't really thought about before. Because of your sort of incisive way of looking at getting at maybe it's. I mean, it's the way you operated, getting at the innards of the music and getting at the affect of the music. You know, I've seen you do it with my music. I've seen you do it with a lot of music. And so I found that uh, I've learned as much, maybe more in a way, from having you uh, interact with that music. I've learned a whole new range of ways of thinking about it. George, that's very kind of you to say. Um, I, it's, um, well, I, you know, when you have really great music, it's easy to say something about it, I think, you know? Um, and, like, he's such a skilled composer that, like, it's just, it's just cool, you know. It's just, I mean, it's, it's also like, it's the music that I want to listen to, you know. It's sort of like that's kind of like, you know. I think Doniente has a very complicated programming philosophy, of course, or has we have a lot of discussions and fights and things like that. But in the end, kind of a lot of what we program is like what we want to listen to, and like that's what that music is. Um, so th- thank you for introducing me to well, him. Well, what, what I want to say. you guys have done this thing in Chicago. I mean, I didn't really see it in its full set of capabilities until uh, Augusta Reed Thomas did the ear taxi. Hmm. And suddenly I was seeing like a whole new approach. I mean, I've been with the ACM. We're trying to get traction for new music in various ways. I mean, we had some good concerts, but we also had concerts with like three people in the audience, you know. And suddenly I'm seeing like banners all over the downtown area of my hometown <laughs> saying new music this and uh, what? <laughs> <laughs> and then there you guys were right in the thick of it. 
And there's a whole new generation of people and the ASIM was also involved with this and you know, the younger generation, Tamika Reed and all this. And so we are, it, it showed me that there was, it gave me a new way to think about my hometown. And it's unfortunate that uh, the COVID situation has caused mm. the cancellation of our May 15th event mm. at, with Music Now, which was Missy Mazzoli curated mm. with Tamika Reed and Nicole Mitchell, another, the first woman to be the chair of the ACM, among mm. other people, and, uh, and also a performance of a couple of pieces of mine. And, um, but overall, I think that um, one of the things this has done is to, you guys and others have done, have been to place Chicago in this incredible position uh, on the on the new music map. Um, I mean, I do think I, I do think a lot of people in this town are coming to realize, you know, what what uh, what our sort of our, our generation. I suppose. I mean, I'm I'm now like I'm 41, so I'm not like the young generation by any stretch of the imagination. But even like the, the ensembles that are a generation younger than me, how much they owe. Um, to the to the work that was being done in Chicago uh, in in the sixties and seventies, and, that and then was, you had Ace Blackbird later, right? Right, and Ice Ice being around Chicago, and probably others. I don't I don't know them all. Yeah, you know? I, I mean, I think, and I think I am interested in in this. You know, there's a quote you, you sent me this art this um this article. Well, I mean, it's a it's a I guess it's a little symposium, and it has a an afterword by Anne Schreffler. Who, who sort of, um, and she quotes somewhere in here, I'm going to see if I can find it, she quotes Vijay Iyer as talking about um, sort of jazz and classical music, th those words being like marketing terms. And, um, you know, and, you know the, and, and overall what Anne is talking about is this notion of boundaryless and how that still kind of like still reinforces certain, you know, problematic characteristics. But um, I, I, do, I do think that, you know, for whatever reason, I don't want to say we feel boundaryless, but I think that that I don't detect them. And I, I and with, with my students, I certainly feel this way as well. Um, with my students, I feel like just a lot less. You know, the people that are twenty years old that are in performance programs, for instance, at DePaul, I feel like a lot less commitment to genre or stake. They don't seem to have as many stakes in genre, and they don't necessarily care that the word classical music is used or um and, and just because i think the actual like on the ground uh listening that they do is so kind of um is so all over the place you know they like they listen to spotify and the spotify playlist comes up and they hear this and you know they hear george lewis one second and they hear like they hear beethoven the next second and they hear daft punk the next second you know um, i'm not sure what's your experience like with your composition students are they like with similar or um oh oh yeah i mean certainly but um i was going to also say and i was going to ask you what's that article with Anne? what's it called um it's the it's the afterword in this this um uh boundaries of the new american classical music the turn of the millennium um it was this it's thing no it's a it was a symposium that judy lockhead had. oh i just downloaded that yeah, yesterday yeah yeah i hadn't read it okay and Anne no, wrote it, the afterward okay. and wrote the afterward exactly and she's that. got the, and i'm trying to look for this quote by vijay Iyer that i now can't find oh yeah like, I, I thought i highlighted everything but apparently i didn't so um well i should be able to find it because i did download it yesterday but yeah. i mean but rather than try to look now because yeah. i'm always looking for these things and zoom 
makes the computer run so slow. Yeah, right. Classical and jazz are business terms, explains composer and pianist Vijay Iyer. Merely a convenient setup a long time ago for the marketing of music. You know, I don't want to, like, I, I guess I don't want to go too far with, you know, um, because I think I think we wouldn't want to market trying like you know Anne's point is like you don't want to market the idea of boundarylessness because then like um, you know some boundary you know boundarylessness can be looked at as a privileged thing, right? You know, um, which I think is one of her points, which is a great point. You know, you know she makes the point that like you know if you're stopped at the bar barbed borders of Hungary in 2015 or at the U.S.-Mexico border in 2018, a refugee from war and hardship is not living in a boundaryless world. Well, that's true. I mean, you know, the that's a good point. But, you know, genre terms are also, uh, you know, people are often, often, genre markers have often, and I've sort of written this in a couple of places, often been portrayed as promoting uh, intelligibility mm-hmm. and community. But there's also the sense of genres as, as promoting gatekeeping, uh, creating boundaries, and genre itself is an infrastructure. Genre terms are infrastructure themselves, and different genre terms have different kinds of infrastructures associated with them. This is one of the things that the AACM sought to overcome. Um, so that what I find is that there are a couple of ways to think about this. One is you could you could try to be post-genre, which I think is sort of what you're talking about. Um, my current approach is to sort of uh, expand the boundaries or make them so porous that you don't really know what the limits are. In other words, we should be able to see as far as we can. Within, for, if you're sitting in a chair within some, which is designated as some genre, you should be able to see way out the window as far as you can, and you don't know what's coming next. So, and that's the only way to keep it. If you can see the limits, then you're stuck. And you know you're in a prison. That's what you're really in. Hmm. And it might be a nice gilded prison, and and then you want to look for the jailers. And so and then you sort of you know take their keys and somehow get rid of them. Um, so I don't know. That's um that's part of the complication with with genre for me. Um, and so in thinking about ways to open up genres, it's not just about methodology. It's about subjectivity. You know, because people can use any method or any methodology or, or draw from anything, you know, or anyone or anywhere, you know. But then we start to find that people get jailed or policed based on race or ethnicity or whatever, in particular, gender. They get placed in certain infrastructural insufficiencies. Um, so these are all things that have to be sort of overcome as a means of... Uh, making sure that whatever genres you would like to be associated with uh, accurately represent the best of who you are. Um, and can, can I ask, how, how does what you're talking about now uh, relate to, to your notion of creolite? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I was, I was reading... Gayatri Spivak, who's my, who's a university professor at Columbia, who's a real music head also. Mm, okay. And, um, you know, and she's, I think she was a personal friend of Daniel Poor, for example. Okay. And uh, I ran into her the other day and just talking about these things. And, uh, and she was talking about her famous article. 
she was so funny. She said, well, I've written this article that, you know, a lot of people read, you know, can the subaltern speak? <laughs> I said, okay. Yeah, I, I think I've heard of that. <laughs> Standing on College Walk talking with her, and she was talking about how it was really about listening, not really about speaking. And so, um, so, and then she wrote an article called World Systems and the Creole, and the idea about creolity. And it suddenly occurred to me that there were discourses in, that were in need of, creole, of creolization, not along along lines of race to be sure, but not in a eugenics kind of way, uh, but in a way of like just, we're going to build a new world here and that mm -hmm. world is going to be one in which we have to recognize multiplicities of origins and, and directions. Uh, and then I was able to read uh, the, you know, the work of, uh, uh, you know, Chamoiseau, Patrick Chamoiseau and Raphael Confian and these kind of people, you know, in praise of creolization or creolity. And, uh, Eloge la Creolite, and um, and in reading that, I began to see well, this is something we could really use in terms of music, because they're talking about the reconstruction of a new kind of subject. Mm. So that was something that classical music seemed to me like contemporary music sorely needed. So the the first time I brought this in was um, uh, they brought me in Bjorn Gottstein, who was the director of Don Ashing, and brought me in to give a talk, and this is the talk I gave. It was about creolization and contemporary music, and I gave examples of how creolized listening, thinking about Louis Andres in a very different way. Sure. Or, and my ongoing engagement with uh, Johannes Kreidler's work, uh, which is a very important piece for M. Darbite, which really brings out, or outsourcing, which really brings creolization to the fore in terms of the construction of the, the audience, the listening subject, uh, in terms of a piece of new conceptualism that reminded me very much of the work of um, uh, the famous piece called uh, Couple in the Cage with Guillermo Gomez Pena and Coco Fusco. Same and kind, where, where, where of, they same literally... kind of idea of fictive identities. Yeah, right, because he... in, in that piece they actually literally pretend to be indigenous, uh, some unknown indigenous uh, tribe. Some, and... some indigenous tribe. Yeah, yeah. And, they and people buy it. People right. bought it. And in yeah. the same way, people bought the idea that Johannes Kreiser had hired somebody from the Central <laughs> Conservatory for $10 to write his music. Mm -hmm. So what kind of person buys into that? Right. <laughs> what, you know, yeah. I mean, somebody who really doesn't realize that, you know, Beijing is not really a cultural backwater compared to <laughs> so, Central, Central Conservatory, yeah, it, you know. It's produced some composers, you know. Yeah, I mean, Joe Long, you know, Pulitzer Prize, Chen Yi. I mean, what do you want? The yeah, whole yeah. crew, not to mention Shanghai. There's so yeah, you know, there's a scene, right? Yeah. So anyway, but to so that was the first time I tried to bring race into what could arguably be considered the mecca, a certain kind of mecca, in, in using that term deliberately, of contemporary music mm. in the world, especially mm. in Europe. You know, the major European music festival, and so. And it was it was pretty well received, you know. Mm -hmm. I expected to be, have a lot of pushback, and maybe there was in some bar that I didn't hear about, or somebody got mad, or something. But I, I think overall, since that time, I've been able to have other people think about that to the stage where we're able to start thinking about putting on festivals of Afro-diasporic contemporary music mm -hmm. in in Europe uh, based on this. So the creole creolization in this case, just meant the reconstruction of a new subject for classical music, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I, I, f I found it to be like a really useful and like hopeful concept in, in the context of like kind of U.S. politics right now, um, wh where, you know, I think 
it, you know, it feels to me like we need a way forward. You know, like it, music needs a way forward that is, um, yeah, I think to, as as Mohammed Richard Abrams would would say, I mean, that, that's optimistic. And this this feels to me like actually an opt. You know, um, we obviously live in this terrible political environment with you know run by a bunch of like you know crazy right wing people. And you know, our our reaction to that is you know to be appropriately horrified. Um, you know, but the the discourse is often so cutting and uh, you know negative that I I found this notion of of creolization to be really like actually hopeful and sort of proposing a way forward, a, a positive set of things we can do maybe. Well, you know, American new music hasn't really reached the status of uh, that. It, let's say the European variant, which um, people expect to see at some point and hear at some point in their everyday lives. They expect to hear it even on the major media, mm -hmm. where I don't think uh, you, in anyone ever hears uh, advanced or not advanced, but you know, any kind of unusual new music out there. It's not to say there aren't unusual musics, but um, we don't tend to hear them. Uh, and so that means that we're sort of out of those discourses in a way we don't exist. And so that's a difficult thing for people to swallow. Um, but in a way, that sort of undergroundness of it uh, becomes a way in which we can, a vantage point for being able to uh, advance a critique of the situation we're in, and also not to be sort of taken in by it. Um, mm. So I'd certainly, if you read Anthony Braxton's three-volume uh, Traxium Writings, uh, it's basically that that's a very, very powerful critique of American society and, and also other societies around the world, the sort of first world sort of ways of thinking. And he points out a lot of the, the deficits in that way of thinking. Because we have to remember, we, although we're in the U.S., we operate as musicians, we operate in a global environment. So we have to think of ourselves as being situated yeah. not just in one place. We have to think of ourselves as being in dialogue, in community. And, and so we have a stake in the, out, in the outcomes. And once we see that we have a stake in those outcomes, we have a stake in other kinds of outcomes. For example, um, one can be very concerned with the fact that apparently according to um, I read in the paper yesterday that, you know, I live in New York as, you know, and you, we didn't say that, but I do. And, and apparently at this point, a quarter of the people who live in the city have somehow are infected or something with the COVID-19. That's incredible. So if you walked out the street, which I haven't been out for almost two months, I mean, oh um, anyone you meet, a, a quarter of the, like every fourth person you meet, which is not quite as bad as every that is which is not as quite as bad as the 53 percent of white women who voted for trump so over half of the people you meet or but then that's not unusual because uh except for 1964 apparently uh whites the majority of white people have always supported the republican candidate since 19 i think the depression mm -hmm. uh so um since before roosevelt and then roosevelt comes along and changes that mm -hmm. but um I think that's it. But what what you start to see is, well, maybe it's like when David Duke almost got elected governor of um, of uh, Louisiana and they interviewed some guy. And he said, 
I, I just can't believe it. I'm just looking at, I'm just, at, I go to work every day and I realize that almost half the people I work with every day probably voted for this guy. And so, <laughs> you know, that makes you very insecure. Hmm. And you start to see what situation you're really in. And it's, and you know, I'm not sure that I'm, um, I don't want to get too political about this because I'm not really much of a commentator there, but I've, I'll just say that um, I'm having a hard time with the incompetence explanation as to why uh, we're experiencing this uh, massive uptick in deaths and cases and so on. It seems pretty obvious that, um, that it's been pretty much proven that the federal government figures uh, ignored the entire situation or made mm. light of it. Whole news networks were dedicated to uh, denying it and mm. so on. Mm. You know, I mean, Fox News is like Radio Mil Colleen in Rwanda. <laughs> like uh, responsible for broadcasting, you know, I mean, Radio Mil Colleen broadcasting genocide every day, kill those Tootsies. I mean, what? You know, so you hear this all the way. Oh, there's nothing wrong here. Go out and have mm. a good time, you know. Um, so that kind of irresponsibility, and I heard they're having a lawsuit against them at some point. But um, well, and, and of course, we, have, we, do, we know who's yeah. most affected by the virus, right? We know who's dying overwhelmingly, well, you know. Yeah, and a lot of people are saying, like, well, Chicago. you know, what do you mean? Yeah, in Chicago, my hometown, or here, or in Georgia, where um, the guy said, well, it's, it's okay for nail salons and hairdressers to open up. And, and some African-American Twitter person said, uh, well, don't buy into that. You know, what do you think? Are you yeah. trying to kill us deliberately? Yeah. Don't, don't go out. Yeah. So, you know, at this point, you're in with COINTELPRO or something. So, but it's, but it's out in the open. It's not hidden for 20 years and then right. comes out and it comes out of the, the book. Um, so all of that is affecting the musical environment. And it's also affecting the, it, it could actually affect a lot of things here in New York, like the extent to which people feel that they can't really live here anymore. You know, there's going to be a fallout, not yeah. quite a nuclear fallout, but certainly a kind of fallout where um, you don't really know anything could happen and we, we don't really know. It's a very insecure position to be in around the world. But it, but the difference is here with no working healthcare system of any, you know, no working public health system, um, unlike a lot of countries, uh, you know, if you think it like, y'all just, let's stop here because I don't want to turn this to, in fact, you can cut a lot of this if you like. But, <laughs> but, but when they, when, when Trump made the remark about, um, in, uh, you know, people injecting disinfectant and stuff like that, you know, and a lot of people went ahead and did that. Well, those people weren't expecting to go to the doctor because they didn't have a healthcare system. Right. right. <laughs> so I'd be like, what do you do? You do self-surgery, you avoid going to the doctor, you try to figure out some other way, you take patent medicines or liniments or whatever you think is going to work, you know, and it's because you can't go to the doctor because it costs too much and you don't have the money for it. So people are here used to like various forms of self-reliance. And, uh, but in that environment, I mean, you can't imagine that someone with Someone as a citizen of a country with a working natural healthcare system would, you know, take bleach. <laughs> no one's going to do that. You know? They're not expecting to have to do that. You know. Um, anyway, George, uh, yeah. There are other there are other <laughs> kinds of subjects. And I was yeah. gonna, and I was going to actually play for you mm. uh, if you like. And uh, I love that. Be, 
Let's end on an upper on a, on a high note. Well, yeah, it's a pretty high note. I was I was going to play. It's just a little bit of it. You know, back to the. We didn't talk about a lot of different kinds of music. We didn't talk about assemblage. You know, a mm. lot of the. You know, a lot of the. You know, in about ten years ago, I decided I'd spend a lot of my time composing for ensembles, because that was one thing where I felt I could learn a lot, and it was going to be. You know, I've done installation pieces. I've done computer music. I've played a lot with a lot of people, and. Um, it's, I just decided I wanted to do something else, and I just wanted to see if I could um, write this music and have it be something that would that would matter to people. And uh, and it turned out maybe that's okay, and that I'm pretty happy about the way it's turned out. But this is um this is um 1976, and the the jazz workshop in um in Boston, and this was my probably my first concert or maybe second concert with Anthony Braxton and Muhal was playing and Dave Holland uh, who was the way Dave Holland was kind of the inspiration for my first computer programs I wanted them to sound like Dave and of course they didn't sound anything like Dave but that was the goal (laughs) (laughs) okay I'm going to stop it here this is this is this is Barry Altschul's solo we don't know how long it's going to go on Still a 
Wow. Well, yeah, that's a nut. That's a little nuts there. <laughs> that's that's just that's <laughs> rock and roll, man. Oh you know, my gosh. you can you can hear Kenny Wheeler because that play that same piece, and you know he did a, he was a little less sloppy than I was, but you know <laughs> managed to get through it. And um, you know it's it's and you know all those repetitions are all written out, the number of them and everything, mm. and so you have to kind of like um, you have to kind of keep up. You can't can't fake it or anything like that. So, uh, and this he, Anthony had these different modes of rep, of repetition. You know, like, and there was one where it would be this angular thing you had to repeat over and over, like, <laughs> you had to do stuff like that, you know. Uh-huh. So yeah, and so it would go on. You, that would go on for quite some. He called that the Kelvin series. The Kelvin series, okay. And then he had a Kaufman series. He had an, and then he had a third series. I forgot the name of it. He probably has now. He has the Ghost Trance series. And mm, of course, something since then. I don't know what. It continues to be a super creative guy, you know. And these operas, my God, you know. Yeah. Well, we'll try to do one of those in Chicago sometime. Um, that would yeah. be amazing. Yeah. That would be amazing. George, I mean, I think, so I'm sorry we didn't get to talk about Assemblage. I think we should probably um, probably wrap things up. But we'll, I'll, we'll play Assemblage on the way out, um, you know. I think how'd that be? But I, mean, I just, you know, um, George, it's just, I don't know, man. It's just always a pleasure and a delight. And it's like, uh, speaking of, uh, of keeping up, you know, it does, like, these conversations that we have sometimes, I feel like they are these, like, improvisations where you have to, like, stay ready and you got to like be, you know be ready for this quick turn that way and this quick turn that way and like you got to write stuff down as fast as you can write it down and and so like you know the, uh, you know i i find it just a joy to talk to you for that reason as it does have a kind of like it, it feels musical to talk to you in a way so um thank you for sharing of your time and your music so generously i mean it's just it's so great i mean well, thanks, Michael. Um, and the next time we'll get into neoliberalism, I promise. Yeah, we can talk that, about Thomas Meadowcroft, that piece, at, the, the piece from Dora Eschingen. Oh, we can talk about Mariana Ritchie and Andrea Moore and all those kinds of people. I still have to like learn a bit more about that. But, we, but it's an important topic. We, we could probably do a part two sometime we could get into. Yeah, George, George Lewis and, and Michael next time. Uh, yeah, on neoliberalism. If you oh, can, you know, if you know you what? Can I, stand it. <laughs> yeah. You, you know what I realized? I've I've seen myself cited a couple of times in like a bibliography because your name, L, you know, Lewis L E W I S, and L E W A N is my you know, and then oftentimes Tanya Leone is like before that because she's L E, um, and so I, I often find myself sandwiched between like you and uh, Tanya in 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 uh, bibliographies, and that always makes me really happy. So. Um, that's a good name. Anyway, Lewis and Lewanski on, on neoliberalism <laughs> next time. Yeah. So anyway, George Lewis, it's just it's a great pleasure to have you. So thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks a lot. Mm-hmm.